0: He was getting a little fidgety. He said that the announcements were too long, so. (laughs) Baby dedications are a church tradition that we take from Scripture. We see a lot of men and women in the Scriptures who dedicated their children to the service of the Lord, and Hannah is one of the most notable ones. But also the tradition of the Jews were to bring the babies into the temple and they would be blessed. And we know that even in the Scripture, Jesus as a baby was brought into the temple. But understand, just like with any other tradition, whether it be baptism or anything else we do in the church, it doesn't guarantee salvation. Salvation comes when the little one grows up and he's mature enough to uh, understand who Jesus is and to receive him as his Lord and Savior or go his own way. It's It's the chance or where the road starts to split where the child grows up and leaves his mother and father's faith and develops his own faith in Christ. And that's joyous too. So the question is, then why do we do this if it doesn't guarantee salvation? Well, it's for the purpose of the parents presenting their child to the Lord and also for the parents to make a commitment. Boy, look at how intent he's listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's great. It's also for the parents to, um, where was I? Uh, to make a, to promise, right, commitment in raising their child in the ways of the Lord, but we also have a responsibility. Our responsibility is to put the the baby's face with the parents, Dave's our worship leader, and say, oh yeah, okay, that's Jaden's daddy. And to pray for the little one and pray for the parents as they raise him and also to uh, give assistance if need be, right? The mature and the older believers help us younger believers. So at this point in time, I think he'll come to me he's never given me a problem yet hey dude what's up this is Jaden austin lawrence and he was born on june 1st 2009 and his parents are dave and marissa lawrence no siblings yet so at this time let's bow our head and go before the lord with these three father in heaven lord we thank you for this family We thank you for the blessing that Jaden has been to us and the blessing that his parents have been, Lord. We just pray that you would, uh, as he grows, Lord, fill him with your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, help him to be guided by you as he grows and becomes an adult and becomes a strong leader, Lord, not a wishy-washy leader. We need some strong leaders for Christ, Lord. Have him take a stand and have him choose what's right and to reject what's wrong and also help his parents in that journey, Lord. So we go before you now. We pray that you bless this time and this family, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will clap? Clap. That face says, they're all clapping for me. <laughs> Here you go. Let me give you a certificate. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 8. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. going to be in 1 Corinthians 8. The last three chapters, we saw the Apostle Paul speak about marriage and more intimate relationships uh, uh, regarding believers. And today we're going to see the title of this chapter is Principles of Liberty and the Weaker Brother, which is a broader theme of love relationships among all believers. Chapter 8, starting with verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies just as we've seen before the Apostle Paul is uh, he receives some questions from this young Corinthian largely Gentile church about how they were supposed to meander through this basically new faith okay this this new church that was started so we don't have the letter to Paul asking the questions we can only surmise but we do have the Apostle Paul's answers and you may say well who were the Corinthians and how does that apply to me almost 2,000 years later? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to answer it for you. So question could be, the question could have been to Paul, can a Christian buy and or eat meat in Corinth knowing already that it's been sacrificed to the pagan gods? Uh, we know that the Romans and the Greeks had a pantheon of gods. You've heard of you know, Zeus and Hera and Jupiter and Aphrodite and Apollo and all these different false gods. Of course, they don't exist. But they had these temples that they would set up, these places of worship, and they do, would do various things in these temples. And one of the things that they would do was sacrifice their animals to the pagan gods. It was a very common practice in Corinth. Um, <clears throat> one portion of the animal would be burnt, to sacrifice to the false deity, uh, the priest would eat another portion. The worshipper would eat another portion, and often there was excess. So they would take the excess and either sell it outrightly in the temple, or they would send it to the market and sell it to the general public. So, I have to understand that again, Corinth was largely Gentile, and this is what was going on here. So, if you were a pagan and you, you know, came into the faith of Christianity, you would renounce your paganism. But if you saw your fellow Christian eating a steak sandwich in the idol's temple, well, what would happen? Your faith would be shaken. It's no different today as if a Christian comes out of alcohol, alcoholism, and sees another brother or sister having a glass of wine or a beer and saying, gee, that person goes to my church. Um, Their faith could be shaken, especially if it was their pastor that did that. But understand, the faith is shaken because they're a weak believer. Now, I don't say that as a dig. Everyone who comes to Christ starts out as a weak believer. They're not a Bible genius, right? They have to take baby steps through the faith. So they're weak. Their their foundation in in the Lord is not strong enough. Their foundation in the Word isn't strong enough. uh, Not to be shaken by what men do. Now, on the extreme, I will say that I've been a, a road patrolman for 18 years, and I've seen the darkest side of humanity. I've seen what Christians and clergy do when nobody else is looking, but you know what? God is still sovereign. It doesn't matter what men do. It doesn't matter what my mentors do. It doesn't matter what pastors or great personalities on the TV do that claim to be Christian because my faith is not in men. It's in Jesus Christ, and that's important to remember. Now, (laughs) that's good. good. I can dig the feedback. I like that give me a chance to take a sip of water (laughs) but in context whether a believer was eating meat uh, 2,000 years ago that was sacrificed to an idol or uh, a believer today is having a beer it's not wrong but the question begs what happens if it's done in front of a weak believer how do we respond to that well classic Paul doesn't just answer the question he answers it by getting to the heart of the matter Do we love our weaker brothers and sisters? Would we suppress or sacrifice our Christian liberty or Christian freedom, in some cases, to help that weaker believer grow in their walk and grow in their faith? Because today's sermon, I gave you the title, but that's not really what it's about. Today's sermon is that love is at the, underneath the veneer, love is at the heart of the matter. Verse 1, it says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, a knowledgeable knowledgeable believer may see the scenario and say, oh, that's silly. Get over it. There's no such thing as Apollo or Zeus, okay? Sometimes the smarter we are, we can be a little puffed up or arrogant. You see, knowledge must be tempered with love, and we're going to see that. Now, conversely, I'm going to go a little bit on a sidebar here. Uh, Love also must be tempered with knowledge right otherwise you get the other extreme feelings of love with no truth sentimentalism or the heresy universalism William Young who wrote the the bestseller the shack uh, Christian universalism was at the heart of what this man's core beliefs and that's why it's a problem this book universalism says that in the end there is no hell that God takes everybody to heaven and we can all feel good about that unfortunately that's not the truth Let me give you an example. I'm not Pastor Joe today. I'm Dr. Joe, right? I'm in in the community and I'm a popular doctor, right? Man comes in equally as uh, popular from the community and he says, Dr. Joe, I have pains inside. So I said, don't worry, Mr. Jones. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take some films and blood work and urine and, you know, we'll find out what it is and fix you right up. So I send Mr. Jones out of my office. Now, in private, I get the paperwork back, and I see that Mr. Jones has an aggressive tumor that's wrapping around his organs. And there's only one way to help Mr. Jones free him of this pain and and this this thing that will eventually kill him. But if I tell Mr. Jones the way that he's going to be free and he can live, it's going to be very offensive. It could cause Mr. Jones to look at me and say, you know what, I don't like what you're saying. I'm going to leave you as my GP and find another physician so I have two choices I could lie to him say don't worry about it he's an older guy anyway you know maybe he'll live a few more years and nobody will blame me if something happens or I could tell him the truth and let the you know consequences be what they are you know folks there's a lot of pastors out there there's a lot of Bible teachers who are teaching that there's no such thing as hell now I don't particularly enjoy the subject I really don't I was talking to another pastor friend of mine and I don't think any pastor enjoys the subject but you need to know the truth. But understand this, that nobody has to go there. The Bible is very clear that nobody has to go there. In the context of this uh, scripture, however, if love is the guiding principle, we want to edify and build up the weak believer, all right? I can be a Bible genius and be educated and have all the letters after my names. I could also be cold and have no regard for others. 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody knows that's the love chapter. The Apostle Paul wrote it. It's read at weddings. We love the love chapter. But do you know what he says in the beginning of those uh, a few verses in the beginning? The Apostle Paul says, "Listen, I could know all the mysteries of God. I could uh, give my body to be burned. Uh, I could speak with the tongues of angels." He said, "But if I have love, it it profits me nothing." So in that chapter, it basically is telling us that achievements. Without love equals zero, it equals nothing. If love is the guiding principle, we will use our knowledge to counsel others, to share, to edify, and do it gently and patiently. You see, love is a bore if you can't share it. When God made love, he made it to be shared with others, even if you're single you can still share that love with members of your family or other brothers and sisters in the Lord. So love is important, and it needs to be shared. The Apostle Paul says, but love edifies. The Greek word for edify is oikodomeo, and it's a compound or a composite word that is, has the noun house and the verb to build. And in those days, it was used in construction applications. So my question is, as stronger believers who can we seek to build up maybe the teens that are in here today you may know some of them before they go off to college strengthen them build them up maybe a weak believer maybe someone who's come out of a cult and they're frightened and they don't know what to believe we should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and see who we can build up not just go around building knowledge and a war chest and doing nothing with it I personally love when the new believers um come into my office and they have the proverbial suitcase filled with questions i just love to sit there and answer their questions i get blessed by building them up verse 2 and if anyone thinks that he knows anything he knows nothing yet as he ought to know but if anyone loves god this one is known by him so if i know that there's no such thing as an idol and i humiliate my weaker brother i have knowledge but I know nothing according to the scripture. If we truly have God's wisdom, we love the weaker believer by, not, by being patient with them, pretty much. I'm just going to read a few scriptures, um, a few verses. First John 4, 7, and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And if everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, he who does not love... Does not know God, for God is love, and in john thirteen thirty four and thirty five Jesus says this before he departed, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How many times was love used in those few verses, seven, eight times maybe? So it's important that we understand that love is more of an action, right? Love is dynamic, more than a feeling, a whimsical feeling, the proverbial pedal. She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. Oh, I don't like that. I'm gonna grab another thing out of the ground and try it again until I get it right. That's not love. Love is an action. And if you love God, you are also known of God. Some think they're of God, but God doesn't know them. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, many will come to me and say, didn't I do miracles? Didn't I do great things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Okay. That's important. Uh, Dave did a great uh, study a few Wednesdays ago, and it was uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley, right? And their doctrines couldn't have been any further apart, but these are two men that loved each other to the point where they wanted to have burial plots next to each other again on earth they adamantly disagreed with the others theology in certain respects but they knew how to love each other and the point that Dave was trying to make is that we need to exemplify that today in America because sometimes that's lost and I would just say this to the unbelievers or if you don't know Jesus if you've seen Christians who were mean and warring against each other that's a dysfunctional Christianity and it's not a reflection of the person of Christ. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, the one Lord, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live now he's not saying that there other gods and other lords exist he's saying that people think they do the polytheists uh... hinduism boasts uh, hundreds of millions of gods a god for everything they can't even count all their gods but of course we know that in reality that doesn't exist even in the old testament in deuteronomy in the law in the deepest foundations of the old testament scripture in the hebrew In the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word for one in the Hebrew, and I love to share this with my Jewish friends, is Echad versus Yachid. And it's not Old Greek to me. It's actually Hebrew. But Echad means a united one. All right? Giving us an instance or a glimpse or a snapshot of God himself, even in the Old Testament. God is one God, but he expresses himself in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yahid, which was not used by Moses, means a solitary one. In other words, in mathematics, you'd see a number in the brackets, which means an absolute number. So even in the Old Testament, God was giving a glimpse of himself as the Trinity, and that's important. But there's one God. Let me just give you an example through all this i go to the temple i'm a corinthian i'm a believer and um it's obvious right some pagan comes and brings his cow and they do the thing they cut it up they butcher it they have excess, excess meat and oftentimes one source said that uh, in those days you could buy the meat at a discounted rate in through these you know these temple markets so to speak and i could watch the whole process i'm a strong believer they could make a hamburger out of it give it to me i could take a bite and say mm, mm, mm. that really hit the spot having a completely clear conscience towards God, knowing that all that silly things that they were doing with the the dancing and the sacrificing, it doesn't mean anything because that God doesn't exist. John 1, 3, it says that through Jesus, all things were made. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone the knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol And their conscience being weak is defiled so in those days if a weak believer had a hamburger or whatever they ate and found out later did you know that that was sacrificed to Apollo they might try to get rid of it you know they might try to they might not be able to sleep at night because their conscience being weak would have said oh my goodness I can't believe this I I came to Christ and I ate this burger and I didn't realize it was sacrificed to Apollo also they could see another believer do the same thing right and still be shocked they should still they can still have their conscience shocked well that guy goes to my church i saw him in the temple eating a hamburger too and they would be equally as as, as frightened or you know there's there's an element here of insecurity fear caution as their knowledge and faith haven't developed into maturity yet now i want to digress a little bit into the meaning of conscience We often go into the etymology of words, and I say well this one comes from the Greek, but this particular word comes from the Latin, conscience. It means literally with knowledge, or the knowledge within. Looking up in Webster's dictionary, there was two um, meanings for it. The first meaning, conscience, a knowledge of sense of right and wrong with the urge to do right. The second meaning, conscience, a moral judgment that opposes A violation of a previously recognized ethical principle and leads to feelings of guilt if one violates that principle so we're on the right track so far both the Bible and psychological data agree that a conscience can be altered for the worse I'll give you an example well the Bible says in first Timothy 4 first I'm going to read the result and then the foundation for that result two verses It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to demons or deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So because of a a, a ruined or or destroyed or sickly conscience, uh, they can open themselves up to all kinds of vice and evil. They can continue their behavior uh, until they feel that there's nothing wrong anymore. Now in extreme, it would be the serial killer. This person has no conscience anymore, might have started with one, but they uh, suppressed it and, and, and it was seared and over time they're able to do these heinous acts without feeling any remorse. Or even some who have a hardened, and they don't even know why, a hardened rejection of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. They don't, can't even put their finger on it, but they know when they hear Jesus, they get all angry. They never met Jesus. What are they so mad at? See, there's a, there's, a, there's a searing of the conscience. There's a hardening of the heart. Now, the conscience can also be altered for the better. When one is born again of the Spirit of God, the conscience is altered to maintain a higher standard. Of course, it's our Lord's standard. And as believers, we look to our Lord and that high bar that he set and we always look to that that high bar and try to achieve as great uh, as we can because we love God we have the mind of Christ of course on this side of eternity we never get there we never arrive but we have a higher standard our conscience is changed for the better now the weaker believer until he understands the full counsel of God comes to the Lord and thinks that every pleasure is wrong and avoids it because he doesn't know yet he's a weak believer Now, the Bible says we're to help this weak believer grow steadily and not to A, wound his conscience by humiliating him into having no conscience. That's called desensitization, where you know something's wrong and you do it and it feels a little wrong. You do it again the next time. It doesn't feel as bad. And eventually, before you know it, you're desensitized to that uh, sin. Or we don't want to leave the weak believer in a weakened state, making them judgmental self-righteous or fearful verse eight but food does not commend us to god for neither if we eat it are we the better nor if we do not eat it are we the worse the strong believer knows this jesus's teachings while he was already on the earth already said it's not what goes into the mouth of a man that defiles him but it's what comes out food issue was already dealt with by jesus and this is another reason folks that sometimes people who don't know the lord don't come to christ because sometimes what they see in christianity quite frankly is a drag you mean so i I get born again and what do i have to do this is what i've seen i got to give all my money to the church uh i can't have any fun anymore god is the is the cosmic killer of fun And um, you know I got to be part of a clique, and I've got to be miserable the rest of my life gee that's not for me well that's also a lie (laughs) I can tell you that as a believer I've never had as much fun I've never laughed as hard I've never had as much joy as much of a feeling of my life that I have a purpose in life right and that inner peace being a believer is rewarding God's not trying to kill your fun he loves you he's gonna make your life that much the better okay verse nine but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block or a cause of offense to those who are weak beware lest this liberty becomes a stumbling block in the Greek it literally means to be to have an occasion of apostasy it's pretty heavy to cause someone to fall into sin we are free in Christ but we're not free to engage in whatever we want if it destroys a weaker believers conscience now A pastor can say or someone in ministry a minister can say you know what I'm tired of being under the microscope I'm tired of watching having everybody watch what I do I'm tired of living in a fishbowl I'm gonna do what I want and I can still be saved soteriologically which is the study of salvation that's a true statement but nobody forces you into the ministry right and you don't have to stay what four-letter word keeps a pastor in his fishbowl or a minister the answer is love for those that we're ministering to you see sacrificial love is what we employ as we try to emulate our Lord Jesus Christ see true love is not just a feeling true love involves sacrifice I don't believe you can have true love without sacrificing right that's the message of the cross Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed himself for us and that's why we have a problem in our country with relationships. Not just divorce, but familiar relationships and all types of relationships because that, that sacrificial love isn't there. You know, to stay married for better or for worse. A lot of times we're in the marriage, it's the worst. It's not time to get divorced. It's time to work through those issues and, and, and get deeper, you know, to build your character stronger. Sacrificial love. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in idols temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. This is the result of someone stumbled. And you can say, well, it's not my problem that they saw me doing that something and they're hurt. And God says, oh, yes, it is your problem. Now, this particular portion of Scripture is more of a public consumption. I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll get to, but it kind of ties in here. This is what I'm going to read now is more of a private consumption if you go to someone's house. It says, the Apostle Paul says again, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but but all things do not edify or build up. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who told you. And for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And this is, this is it, that they may be saved. And that's what it's all about. As believers, you know, we have salvation. It was a free gift. We just have to trust Jesus as the, our Lord and Savior. You know, God does the rest, right? He, he, he put out the olive branch first. The Bible says that we love Jesus because he first loved us. So understand that we have salvation and you know what that's really neat and if we really meditate on that we want others to have salvation too so we may do things and we may limit ourselves for the salvation of others okay verse 12 but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience you sin against Christ so here's the result when you sin against the weaker brother and wound his conscience you sin against Christ and you may say, well, how does that factor out? What is the equation there? Matthew 25, right? Jesus says, the sheep and the goats, you know, the righteous and the ones who will be judged. All right? There's two separate categories. And um, to the ones, you know, he says to them, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you, you helped me. You attended to me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And, and those said, on his right hand, said, well, when did we ever see this? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And the same thing to the ones who would be judged. They didn't do it to the least of the brethren. Okay? And they didn't do it for Jesus. But Jesus, we would have done it if you were here. But Jesus tells us to love others. You see, we can't love God and that's it. No, anyone outside my circle, I don't really care what happens to them. (laughs) That doesn't work like that. It's not the equation. All right? a few points to make on this the first one is to those who are astute Bible students what comes to mind when I read the scripture probably Acts 1529 the Jerusalem Council I'm kinda of painting myself into a corner here but I don't mind doing that so the Jerusalem Council said hey to the Gentiles don't number one don't let them eat anything offered to idols let them abstain from that and two, let them abstain from blood. But understand, 1 Corinthians 8 is a qualifier to Acts 15, 29, okay? In and of itself, it's not not the unpardonable sin. It's not going to damn you to hell. But the first thing, things offered to idols. So the Gentiles are new into this whole Christianity thing, you know, way back when. And, uh, you know, they're not strong believers. So stay away from things offered to idols. We just covered that. It's not going to do anything to you personally but you could hurt the conscience of the weaker believer the second point in the jerusalem council stay away from blood the jews also were new to this you know jews were jews for thousands of years and uh you know they received jesus as their lord and savior they see him as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets they're completed in a sense all right but the whole blood thing kind of weirds them out still so stay away from blood and really the overriding principle is love now we even see that the Apostle Paul said resist the Judaizers in the scripture. They demanded you be a Jew first if you were a Jew, or if you were a Gentile, you had to become a Jew first and then Christian. The Apostle Paul said, no, whatever state you're in, you come to Christ, you come to the cross. But what's interesting is the Apostle Paul had, had Timothy circumcised before he ministered to the Jews. Well, was that a contradiction? No, it's not. In order to reach the Jews, he had to be as a Jew, and we'll cover that later in the scripture. So. For the Bible students, I think that this is really more of a qualifier uh, of what the Jerusalem Council was trying to say. Love has to be the overriding principle. Now, the caveat to all this is, wow, I thought I was free in Christ, now I have all these restrictions placed on me. The caveat to that is, or is a question, do you have to change your behavior for everyone who has a problem with what you do in your life? The answer is clearly, no, you don't have to. There are those who are bitty, busy bodies. there are those who are manipulators, and they will say, I'm stumbled by what you did. It's more of a way to kind of change your behavior or get you to do something or get you to not do something. The response for somebody who's been a Christian a long time and says, well, I'm stumbled by that. The response should be, oh, wow, I'm sorry, I didn't realize what a weak believer you were. <laughs> See how that goes over. <laughs> or MYOB, mind your own business or beeswax. I can say that now that I raise bees. Um, But taken to the extreme, Jesus even characterized his generation in Matthew 11. I like this. I'll just paraphrase it. Jesus says he speaks about himself in the third person and also speaks about John the Baptist. Jesus said this for his generation, and it, it applies today too. John the Baptist came, He was sequestered from society he wore a leather belt he ate locusts and honey he was a wild man he comes out on the scene he doesn't care if it's the Roman soldiers the temple guards the priests the religious leaders he has no fear of man love this guy he just goes out there and lays it down and he says repent for the axe is laid at the root the kingdom of heaven is at hand you know make the way straight for the Messiah Uh, repent right He he preached fire and brimstone, and what was the response from the the society, even the religious society? He's a madman. He has a demon. Who is this guy? And of course, many did repent at his preaching. Jesus comes. The Son of Man comes. He comes gregarious. He's social. He'll eat at anybody's house. He'll break bread with them. he'll, He'll love them. He'll have conversations with them, answer their questions. And the characterization of Jesus was, they said this, he's a drunkard and a glutton, and he's a friend of sinner's. The bottom line is that, look, you had one way, John the Baptist, and you had another way, Jesus, there was no third option. People wanted a third option. This was the type of stiff-necked people in that society. But I would say that that happens today too. Now if Jesus couldn't please everyone, guess what? You're not going to. You're not going to do any better of a job than Jesus did. So. Listen, this scripture is clearly for the weaker believer that we want to love and we want to nurture. It's not for the busybody. It's not for the career Christian. Third point. This may surprise you, but um, I, actually, I like Pastor Warren Wearsby. He's a Baptist preacher, I've always liked his, his books. In Be Wise, uh, it's a commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says this it's an interesting take here. He says, Paul's great concern was that the strong saints help the weaker saints to grow and to stop being weak saints. Some people have the false notion that the strong Christians are the ones who live by rules and regulations and who get offended when others exercise their freedom in Christ. But such is not the case. It is the weak Christians who must have the security of law and who are afraid to use their freedom in Christ. It is the weak Christians who are prone to judge and criticize stronger believers and to stumble over what they do. This, of course, makes it difficult for the strong saints to minister to the weaker brothers and sisters, just human dynamics. Listen, when we become Christians, we often think that we have to change everything. We think that we have to get rid of all of our old friends and replace it with a new set of Christian friends. We have to get rid of our old physician and replace him with a Christian physician. Put our kids in Christian schools. Get a, a Christian mechanic, a Christian accountant, a Christian realtor. You get the picture. And then we end up finding ourselves in a cloistered Christian bubble. And I find that people like that come off as sanctimonious and snobby. And I think that's weakness. First Corinthians 5 says not to shun the world and the sinners, but shun the hypocritical Christians. But sometimes in the church we do it backwards. Jesus says this salt and light he says we as Christians are supposed to be salt We're supposed to be a preserving influence in the world and Jesus says when the salt loses its saltiness and it's not good for doing that anymore it needs to be thrown out of the house and it gets trampled underfoot by men we need to love the world and go out to them and show them the love of Christ and show them that we love them I actually enjoy going to see some of the worst sinners and preach I I find that refreshing And you know what? So far, none of them has converted me back to paganism, but I've brought a few of them to the cross. Caveat to this is, if you are going to go somewhere where you think you may stumble, maybe you should avoid it if you're not strong enough yet. One more point, the fourth point on this is examples of stumbling. Different churches have different views on going to the beach, going to a movie, dancing at a wedding, having a beer, getting tattoos, and the like. And the list goes on and on and on. I would say these are not a problem in themselves, but they could become a problem. If you have a serious problem with lust, maybe you shouldn't go to the beach. If you can't tell the difference between two beers and two six-packs, maybe you shouldn't have a beer. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) The lines get fuzzy there. We have freedom in Christ, but we want to avoid anything that comes off as an addiction, makes us look weak, or to stumble a weaker believer in certain circumstances. The last verse verse 13 therefore if food makes my brother stumble i will never again eat meat lest i make my brother stumble that's a bold statement by paul he would deprive himself of a benefit that wasn't sinful so long as it saves the conscience and he's showing love for his weaker brother you see the apostle paul obviously got what it meant to have the heart of God and the mind of Christ this my friends again is the message of the cross love and sacrifice John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life and sometimes we forget the next verse 17 for he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved and that's why Jesus came Jesus sacrificed His comfortable position in heaven he sacrificed his life he sacrificed his rights for what for a bunch of rebellious human beings who couldn't save themselves who were too weak morally to choose not to sin and instead engaged in rebellious behavior towards God when you love a spouse you sacrifice so they can be blessed when you love a child you sacrifice so they can be blessed when you love anyone you give of yourself love means sacrifice for the young people who are looking to get marriage you gotta get that because if you don't you're gonna be very unhappy although you think marriage will solve your problems it won't Jesus loved us first and that's why we love him he made the ultimate sacrifice so our sins wouldn't separate us from God eternally and when we love those who are weaker than us We love them enough to, at times, sacrifice our freedoms so they, in turn, can be built up. Let's pray. Father in heaven,